0: Hello, and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr Kat Arney. In this episode from our series exploring 100 ideas in genetics, we're taking the train to London with William Bateson, seeking the secrets of snapdragons, and unravelling the next generation of DNA sequencing technology. Every other episode of Genetics Unzipped, we're celebrating the Genetics Society's centenary year by exploring some of the top 100 ideas in genetics. This time, we're highlighting three ideas that are on display at the Genetic Society's special garden at the Royal Horticultural Society's Chelsea Flower Show in London, an annual cavalcade of gardening delights. It's open to the public on the 23rd, 24th and 25th of May, so you might just have time to nip along and meet our modern-day Mendel and lose yourself in his valley of fascinating hybrids. We'll be bringing you a special report from the garden in the next episode, but for now sit back, relax, and imagine you're on a steam train, travelling from Cambridge down to London's Liverpool Street on the 8th of May in the year 1900, headed for a very special scientific meeting. Our fellow traveller is William Bateson, one of the leading botanists of his time and soon to be the founder of the Genetic Society. He's travelling to the hallowed halls of the Royal Horticultural Society's HQ in Westminster to present a lecture entitled The Problems in Heredity as a Subject of Horticultural Investigation for the Society's Second International Conference on Plant Hybridisation. The professional and amateur plant breeders of the 19th century were into hybridisation in a big way, crossing all kinds of plants together in the search for useful, bigger, more beautiful or simply weird varieties. Frustratingly, there was no way of predicting what the outcome of any particular cross might be, so the RHS was keen to encourage research into understanding the biological laws underpinning inheritance, which might help steer plant breeders in the right direction. In fact, Darwin's The Origin of Species drew heavily on the results of hybridisation experiments published in The Gardener's Chronicle, a weekly horticultural journal published in London. Charles Chamberlain Hurst had wowed the audience at the previous year's meeting with his experiments on orchids, showing that certain characteristics skipped a generation. He described this strange phenomenon using the terms prepotency and latency, which we now describe as dominant or recessive genes. So the pressure was on for Bateson to come up with something good. Originally, Bateson had planned to deliver a lecture about what was fast becoming known as Galton's Law, the idea that parents contributed equally to their offspring's inherited matter. This idea had been put forward by Francis Galton, Charles Darwin's brilliant but massively racist cousin, who'd figured it out by looking at the white and yellow patches on basset hounds. But like any good scientist, Bateson had brought along a stack of scientific papers to read on the journey. Otherwise, he'd obviously be scrolling mindlessly through Twitter like the rest of us, I'm sure. They'd been sent to him as part of a collection of old papers mentioning hybridisation experiments, gathered in the wake of the previous conference. Lurking among them was a short report written in German from the Journal of an Obscure Natural History Society in Brune. It had been published by an unknown researcher, one Gregor Mendel, and detailed the results of a number of hybridization experiments with pea plants. Despite the paper being more than 30 years old, Bateson found the results electrifying. Oh, oh, oh. As you'll remember from episode 5, Mendel showed that the properties of the parent pea plants showed up in characteristic ratios in their baby peas, revealing the first glimpses of the underlying laws of inheritance that would come to dominate genetics for decades to come. By the time his train pulled into Liverpool Street, Bateson had completely rewritten his lecture to incorporate the presentation of Mendel's work. His big idea had finally arrived. The hushed audience at the RHS meeting in Vincent Square were the first people in Britain to hear of Mendel and his peas. Yet, confusingly for Bateson, these groundbreaking ideas met with stony silence as people tried to figure out why such old, boring work would be presented with such excitement. Not prepared to give up, Bateson set about sharing his discovery with others in the field. He wrote to nudge Francis Galton into reading Mendel's paper, in case he'd missed it, remarking that Mendel's work seems to me one of the most remarkable investigations yet made on heredity, and it is extraordinary that it should have been forgotten. But just like Bateson's audience of bored horticulturalists, Galton didn't bother replying it was hard to see how Mendel's pettifogging experiments with peas might hold the key to the mysteries of inheritance. Even Bateson started to doubt himself. Just a few years earlier, he'd been convinced that the hereditary features of organisms were transmitted by mysterious vibrations rather than physical particles of inheritance. Even so, Bateson arranged for the RHS to publish an English translation of Mendel's original German manuscript, which caused a bit of a stir and prompted him to write a follow-up book entitled Principles of Heredity, A Defence, in 1902. Gradually, more and more pieces of the puzzle of inheritance began to fall into place, and scientists started to see that, actually, maybe this Mendel fellow had been right after all. By the time of the Third International Hybridisation Conference, held by the RHS in 1906, Bateson was a full-blown scientific rock star. It's at this meeting that he invented the name for the new field of inheritance, which its disciples were struggling to describe, announcing that, to meet this difficulty, I suggest for the consideration of this congress the term genetics, the first time the term had been used. And the rest, as they say, is history. Or was it? Bateson may have become well-known as the rediscoverer of Mendel's laws in Britain, but three European plant scientists, Austrian Eric Chermak, German Carl Correns and Dutchman Hugo de Vries, actually got there first, publishing their responses to Mendel's paper before Bateson made his legendary train journey from Cambridge to London. And according to a report about Bateson's lecture to the RHS, published a few days later in May 1900, he didn't even mention Mendel at all, instead referring to De Vries' work on inheritance, suggesting that it might have been the Dutchman's paper about Mendel that he'd read, rather than the original. So where did the train journey story come from? In his book, In Pursuit of the Gene, author James Schwartz points the finger at Beatrice, Bateson's wife, who was keen to portray her husband's great intellect to the world. And as we all know in science, it's the person with the best PR that wins. This is Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip, and online at geneticsunzipped.com. Please do take a minute to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and it would be really great if you could rate and review the show. And please do spread the word. Do tell all your friends so more people can discover it. This is a time of magic and wonder. A time of troubadours and sorcerers, of knights and dragons. What? Okay, plants that look a bit like dragons. Snapdragons, as they're known to gardeners, or antirhinums, if you want to get all fancy-pants Latin about it. Indeed, they were grown by the Romans, who were fond of their pleasing shapes and bright colours. But as well as making a pretty addition to a springtime border or a bridal bouquet, snapdragons hold a special place in the history of genetics. We may think of peas as being the archetypal plant for early geneticists, thanks to Mendel, but he was a big fan of snapdragons too, which he grew in his garden in Bruno. Charles Darwin also had a scientific interest in snapdragons, crossing together various types with different shaped flowers to find out how the characteristics were inherited down the generations. Something made nice and easy by the fact that the plants are easy to breed and come in a wide range of shapes and colours, making it easy to spot the impact of genetic changes and hybridisations. Throughout the 20th century, snapdragons became the plant of choice for researchers seeking to understand how genes create shapes and colours, with hundreds of weird and wonderful variations popping up in labs all over the place, most notably at the John Innes Centre in Norwich, one of the world's leading plant breeding research institutions for more than a century. Some of these strains were most unusual, with stripy or blotchy petals instead of the usual block colour, a pattern known as variegation. This looked remarkably similar to the stripes and blotches that eminent plant geneticist Barbara McClintock had noticed on the kernels of maize corn back in the 1940s and 50s, going on to discover that the variegation was caused by jumping genes, or transposons, hopping about within the plant genome. McClintock finally won her long-awaited Nobel Prize in 1983, attracting a lot of interest in these curious jumping genes, including the attention of Enrico Cohen, a young researcher who'd come to the John Innes Centre in the early 80s in search of a new project to sink his teeth into. Because they were so much easier and quicker to grow than lumbering corn plants, and prettier too, he focused his sights on stripy snapdragons. But instead of fixating on the colour changes caused by transposons, Cohen wondered whether rogue jumping genes might occasionally land in a location containing important genes for flower development. Together with his technician Rosemary Carpenter, Rico combed through huge fields of snapdragons, searching for the one in a thousand with weird-shaped flowers that might be the result of a genetic change caused by a rogue transposon. The hunt paid off, and by the 90s, they'd pinned down many genes responsible for building the intricate shapes and structures of snapdragon flowers. Since then, Rico and other plant biologists have focused on figuring out how these genes work to sculpt the five petals of the snapdragon flower into its characteristic roaring mouth, something that requires not only an understanding of genetics, but of geometry too. And geometry means maths. Not the kind of maths you find on a dusty chalkboard, but modern mathematical modelling, simulating silicon snapdragons inside a computer by plugging in data from real flowers and seeing what happens when you tweak their genes. We've come a long way from the days of Mendel and Darwin. Today, researchers like Rico Cohen can study how genetic changes affect the shape of a snapdragon without setting foot in a muddy country garden. Unless, of course, they just want to smell the flowers. do if you want to gather an army of thousands of Minions. If you're Gru, the anti-hero of the Despicable Me films, you just wait for them to show up. But if you're a biotech company searching for the next big thing in DNA sequencing, unfortunately you have to do it the hard way. The original story of the Minion, a DNA sequencing device that fits in the palm of your hand, starts in 1989. At that time, the world of DNA sequencing ran on chemical reactions, either making or breaking DNA one base pair at a time and highlighting the resulting letters with four fluorescent dyes, one for each of the bases, A, C, T and G. It was tedious and slow and relied on having enough starting material to get enough fluorescent signal to read. For several years, David Deamer at UC Santa Cruz and Harvard's Daniel Branton had been dreaming of a completely new way of reading DNA, identifying each base in a single strand through its physical properties, in the same way a Braille reader runs their finger along a string of raised bumps to read the letters on the page. But how could they do it? They realised that the solution lay in pulling a single strand of DNA through a tiny hole in a membrane, known as a nanopore, bathed each side with a salty solution that conducts electricity. As each base pops through the hole, it should trigger a tiny electrical change across the membrane. Not much, but enough to be detectable. And importantly, each different base A, C, T, or G should have its own characteristic electrical wobble, providing a readout of the sequence of a single strand of DNA. At least, that was the idea. It took a while to prove the principle, and even longer to persuade anyone to believe that it actually worked. For a start, such a pore didn't exist. And there were huge technical challenges to be overcome in trying to persuade wriggling strands of DNA to feed themselves into the hole and proceed through in an orderly fashion, and to detect the signals as each base popped past. George Church, who we spoke with in the last podcast, also came up with the idea of nanopore sequencing at around the same time. He teamed up with Dema and Branton to file a patent on the idea, but lost interest and moved on to other sequencing technologies when the technical issues seemed insurmountable. The other two kept on going, and nine years later, in 1996, they published a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, proving that it was possible to read the sequence of a strand of DNA pulled through a pore. And so the field of nanopore sequencing was born. By 2008, Oxford Nanopore, a company that spun out of Oxford University, had teamed up with DEMA and Branton to turn the concept into a reality. They showcased the first versions of their new commercial DNA sequences, the tiny Minion and its big brother, the Gridion, in 2012, gaining as much scepticism as excitement. Nice idea, sure, but was it any good? The company put their money where their mouth was, offering Minion sequences to anyone who wanted to try them in exchange for a $1,000 deposit. It was a smart move, and the scientific community put them to the test, taking them all over the world in search of things to sequence. The technology has continued to develop over the years, particularly in terms of accuracy, which was generally reputed to be not as good as larger lab-based machines that run on more conventional fluorescent-based techniques. One common application is plant genetics, where the Minion's ability to read exceptionally long strands of DNA in a single stretch has proved very useful for unravelling the large, complex genomes of many plant species. In fact, there will even be one in action at the Genetic Society's garden at the Royal Horticultural Society's Chelsea Flower Show this year. It's fair to say that the Minion has been revolutionary in terms of bringing DNA sequencing to previously inaccessible parts of the world. They've been used for tracking infectious disease outbreaks, monitoring endangered populations of wild animals, citizen science projects and almost anything else you can imagine. A true global army of minions. So, if you actually want a minion army that's made up of those little yellow guys in blue dungarees, rather than a game-changing tiny DNA sequencer, all I have to say to you is... BANANA! For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits, and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip or email me at podcast at geneticsunzipped.com with any questions and feedback. Please do take a minute to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from and it would be great if you could rate and review. And more importantly, please spread the word so more people can discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Kat Arney, and produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world, dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, our logo designed by James Mayle, and production was by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye we <laughs>